Hey, y'all. Happy Women's History Month. But before we get into the amazing contributions of Black women to both Black and American history, I want to let you know that I am going to start having two release dates every month. I'm going to be releasing on the 15th and the 30th going forward, which means you get to get a little bit of Black history a little bit more frequently. It's going to be great. Now, being Women's History Month, both episodes this month will focus on Black women's history. This episode, I talked to Dr. Martha Jones, who is basically the authority on Black women's political history, is a professor at John Hopkins University, and is author of the groundbreaking book, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, which came out last year and made the Times must-read list, and is so good in the way that it highlights the stories of so many important Black feminists whose stories don't often get heard. Both the book and our conversation focus on the fact that even though traditionally the feminist movement is discussed as a movement from the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention to the 19th Amendment, Black women, being at the intersection of racism and sexism, fought a very different battle that was a lot longer. It stretches back to the early 19th century and far past the 19th Amendment through the Voting Rights Act and even beyond that. Amazingly, we cover well over 150 years of Black women's political history and even have a little time at the end to look towards what Black women are doing in politics right now. So let's get to it with Professor Jones. To start our conversation, I actually want to go towards a theme that you hammer in a lot towards the end of the book. And that's the fact that even though your book is like this groundbreaking thing, Black women have actually been talking about and writing about their long and unique political history for a long time. So, yeah, I want to start with talking about the history of writing and talking about this history. The first thing to say is that I'm part of a community of Black women's historians who've really been working now for three generations plus on recovering and interpreting and publishing in the field of Black women's history. But you're right that the story of the writing of Black women's lives goes back 200 years. We could land in the early decades of the 19th century, and we would find Black women, we do find Black women who are using their pens to not only tell their own stories, but to analyze their own lives. One of the characters who begins Vanguard is a woman named Jarena Lee. Jarena Lee is called to preach in the AME church at a time when women are not authorized to do that. She has a long struggle against the what today we would think of as the sexism in her AME church community. And yet she persists and is someone who really shatters a barrier in that church and opens the way for women's authority in church. But Jarena Lee does something for us, which is by the 1830s, take a break from the preaching circuit to sit down and to write a memoir a spiritual memoir that recounts her own struggles, her struggles about her confidence, her struggles about her sureness, about her calling, and also recounts the ways in which she has to develop a kind of political philosophy that undergirds the activism 
that is very much a part of her life. And so I was interested in the long origins of political philosophy and analysis that today we would refer to as intersectionality. And I discovered that in Jarena Lee, way back at the beginning of the 19th century, she's already at work on that theory and making it do work in her life in the AME church. Intersectionality is definitely critical to understanding Black women's history, and it's, it's going to come up a lot. But before we get into that, I want to know why you started the book with Jarena Lee. It was important to emphasize that Black women activists are also Black women thinkers, that they are Black women intellectuals. And so when we ask a question, where does a view like intersectionality begin? Yes, of course, we credit scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia Hill Collins with introducing that term and formalizing that analysis. And we benefit from that today. But they stand on the shoulders of women like Jarena Lee. And so while Lee herself never moves into the realm of secular politics, she is teaching women who are organized within the AME church some critical political lessons about their position, about the injustice of their marginalization or their suppression within the AME church community. And by the end of the 19th century, Jarena Lee and women like her will move out of the church or move beyond the church and into the secular realm. They will be there, for example, for the founding of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in 1896. So I wanted to show that Black women do have a distinct origin story when it comes to the struggle for women's rights. Then the story we might associate with women's political conventions that happen a little bit later in the 19th century. While we're on the subject of the church, that's kind of where most of the beginning of your book starts. And I don't know if I'm skipping ahead or not, but one of the big things of your book is that Black feminism goes back to even before what is typically thought of the beginning of feminism, which is the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention. And you just emphasize in your book that in 1848, Black women actually did do something monumental in the AME church. Yes. One of the things we know about the Seneca Falls Convention is that there are no Black women there. Makes it not a very likely place to begin a story about Black women and women's rights and women's votes and feminism. So where to look? One of the principles in my research is not to try and wedge Black women into places where they were not, like the Seneca Falls Convention in July of 1848. But instead, my approach is to ask, so where were Black women and what were they doing? And it turns out that in May of 1848, even before the Seneca Falls meeting, Black women are gathered in Philadelphia. They are there because the AME Church is holding one of its annual general conferences, they are there because they are inspired by women like Jarena Lee to 
transform their status and their standing in the church. And they've come to petition for the right to have preaching licenses, to be equal to men who are licensed, traveling, and preaching the gospel across the United States. So Black women are thinking about their rights in 1848. They are organizing around equality for women in 1848, but they are not doing it in that Methodist chapel in Seneca Falls and instead are doing it at Mother Bethel Church in Philadelphia. And so when we center Black women, it is true that it changes the landscape, it changes the trajectory, but it's important to correct the misunderstanding, which for a long time was that Black women hadn't been at Seneca Falls because they weren't interested in questions about their rights. And it turns out that they were, but they were doing that work in their own communities. Black women had to face racism, but also sexism. And that's why they were fighting in Black churches. It is that in the church, like in anti-slavery societies, like in literary societies, Black women are entering public life, beginning to be part of the political questions of the day, which include the fight against slavery and the quest for civil rights. And in a way, they are wondering out loud, why are you squandering our talents? Why are you overlooking us? In 1832, Mariah Miller Stewart is in Boston. And Stewart is a widow. She's an educator. And she looks around and recognizes the formidable challenges that face her community now in Massachusetts of formerly enslaved people, free Black people who have too few rights face racism at every turn in their daily lives and in the realm of politics and more. And Stewart begins to write and publish in an anti-slavery newspaper, William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator. And then she begins to step to the podium in Boston and speak. It's a short career as a public speaker because Stewart is doing something that no American woman had done before, speaking about politics to a mixed audience of men and women. But she does so out of this concern that the talents of women, the full talents of women are being wasted, are being squandered. And to position women or to limit women to domestic roles is to handicap the community as a whole in the work that it is so ardently trying to accomplish in these years. Stewart's career is brief. She's really ahead of her time, as we say, and she is not so politely run off of the speaker's circuit by hostile audiences, but she becomes and continues to be an educator, and she'll spend the rest of her life training young Black women in the art of elocution, that is public speaking, in the, the complexities of American politics. And so she, while she has a short public career, she has a long, long career in making sure that Black women 
new generations of women are prepared to continue the struggle that she began. It makes a lot of sense, the things that Stuart was promoting, because racism is such a huge obstacle with something that big. It seems like everyone should be all in trying to fight it, especially since racism looks a lot different between men and women. That's one of the reasons why Black women had to have a separate struggle, because they faced both racism and sexism, which manifested differently for them than Black men. One of the discoveries for me in writing this book was to really appreciate how and why Black women have to develop their own political philosophy, have to organize independently. And it is, as you say, because they experience that intersection of racism and sexism uniquely in the early United States. Nowhere more so than in the realm of travel and transportation. And figure after figure, woman after woman in this story will relate how she is excluded from a lady's car, denigrated when she refuses to sit in a smoking car, assaulted when she refuses to give up a seat for which she has paid. This is a circumstance that Black women speak of in terms of dignity. So we expect them to be speaking about equality. And Black men are calling for equality in this period. But Black women also speak of dignity. And this is because their experience is one of this extraordinary vulnerability in the public square, this extraordinary vulnerability when they travel on streetcars or in railroads or steamships. They come to the table of American politics claiming not only for their equality, but for their dignity. And they are alone for a very long time in that particular facet of the struggle. But it is that struggle that pushes them to fully flesh out a political view that decries both racism and sexism as it plays out in their daily lives. Oh, we can go back to you were talking about how even though Stewart couldn't have success being a speaker, she was also an educator that helped bring about the next generation of Black women activists. And that happens throughout your book. Black women often come from a background of teaching into activist work. Yes, being an educator, teacher is one of the few vocations beyond domestic labor or agricultural work that are available to African-American women. And we see the ways in which being a teacher is oftentimes a lot more than simply imparting the ABCs or arithmetic. In Boston, in early America, is a woman named Susan Paul, who is indeed an educator, but also organizes her students into a vocal group, and they travel to promote the anti-slavery cause 
along the way, they encounter these kinds of harassments that is so familiar to Black women when it comes to their experience of traveling. They will be denied access to coaches and cars. But Paul is not a stereotypical schoolroom marm at all. She is a woman who understands that in the education of young Black boys and girls, there is this opportunity not only to bring them into the politics of the time, but there is the possibility of drawing audiences and converts to the anti-slavery cause through that mission. So Black women educators, school teachers show us the extraordinary possibilities for politics in the classroom. This will be true for a figure like Charlotte Fortin Grimke, who has been raised in Philadelphia, is teaching in Massachusetts. And when the Civil War begins, feels herself very much called now to head south to work among formerly enslaved people. She will head to the the Sea Islands. And there, yes, she teaches the rudimentaries of literacy. She teaches mathematics and more, but she learns how to actually build a schoolhouse, how to raise funds. She carries a gun in the pocket of her dress because her school is targeted by those who oppose the education of formerly enslaved people in the South. That's a whole lot more than showing up to teach lessons. And again and again, we encounter women who are educators, but it's so important to explain all of what they did as educators and not leave the impression that they didn't have political lives as part of that vocation. Yeah, that is really important. The fact that education was in itself a way to be an activist, but that being an educator meant so much more than just showing up to class every day. You mentioned fundraising right there, and that's also something that a lot of women did. Can we go a little more into that? Raising funds for church, for your anti-slavery society, for your benevolent organization, and more. This is a role Black women are playing from the very beginning of an organized African-American public culture, without a doubt. But what we learn when we look more closely is that among these women fundraisers are those who are going to use or attempt to use that support for political work to insert themselves into politics. One example comes from New York City, and it is a woman named Hester Lane. Hester Lane had been born in Maryland, migrated to New York, built a business, and was important in returning to Maryland and helping enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, leave Maryland for the free soil of New York City. Hester Lane is modestly prosperous and also uses her money to support the American Anti-Slavery Society, vigilance committees, these political organizations that are safeguarding 
enslaved people, fugitive slaves, and free Black Americans in a city like New York. And what we learn about Hester Lane is that from that, she aspires to leadership in the American anti-slavery society at a moment in 1840 when that organization is wrestling with what was then termed the woman question. What roles should women play in the leadership of anti-slavery societies? Hester Lane steps up and says, I, along with a number of white American women in the movement, I want to be part of the leadership of this organization. And she runs, but she does not succeed. And it's a moment in which we both see her, we see her strategy, which is raise the money, support the good cause, then run for office. But we also see how her prospects are more limited, frankly, than those of white American women who are also vying for leadership. And while some of the white women figures in the movement will indeed succeed in that year and be elected, Hester Lane will not. And it is a reminder that once again, that complex equation, which is racism and sexism, works specifically and distinctly in the lives of Black women in ways that in this example do not work in the same way for white American women. So Hester Lane teaches us about how Black women are strategizing and propelling themselves into politics, but she also teaches us about the limits of what they can accomplish. Those are the big things that Black women were doing politically, I think. We talked about how they used the power of words, both in their writing and in speeches. They were in the church trying to gain leadership. They were educating the next generation of activists, and they were raising money, all of which were ways for them to assert political power within their own communities. And then... After the Civil War, that's where there's a big splinter in how activism works going forward, because as Black men are fighting for the right to vote, white women also are, and there's a big divide right around there. So here we are in the 1860s. The Civil War has ended. The 13th Amendment has abolished slavery in the United States, but there remains an enormous open question about what the future of Black Americans will be in the United States. Will they be citizens? Will they have political rights? Enter an old coalition of allies, some of them anti-slavery activists, some of them women's rights activists, some of them both, who are now going to reconvene to chart out their position on the political questions of the day, which, as you alluded to, include the question of voting rights, who's going to win voting rights now and by what term. There is this extraordinary possibility in this period we call Reconstruction for a major reordering of the body politic. Will women vote? Will Black Americans vote? Well, in our conversation, any analysis that would leave the question as one about women versus Black people 
doesn't take account for a figure like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is at these meetings and is a Black woman looking to define her interests in these scenes, but also to lead this community to its best ideals. Frances Harper was a poet, uh, an anti-slavery lecturer, and a budding suffragist even in the 1860s. She faces off in these years against Frederick Douglass, against Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, against Wendell Phillips, to A, tell them that part of what she is concerned about going forward as a Black woman is dignity. She has been accosted and abused when traveling, for example. And more to the point, she tells this coalition that it cannot define its politics by divvying up along the lines of race or sex, because in that sort of formulation, Black women can't win. They can't survive. They can't be seen. They cannot thrive. And because she's a poet, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper is always quotable. And one of her lines from these gatherings goes like this, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And what she's trying to convey to this group is that their work, their success will be measured, as she puts it, by the fate of the weakest and the feeblest among them. And in this moment, that is Black American women who live at that vexed crossroads of racism and sexism. Now, she is not successful in this moment, but she is setting the terms now for the political organizing that Black women are going to do coming out of Reconstruction. Her voice by the 1890s is going to be amplified by women like Anna Julia Cooper and Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells, who are going to not only found an organization, the National Association of Colored Women, but are going to embrace this view that what Black women's politics is set to do is to defy those who would fracture politics along lines of race or gender. They are going to insist upon a terrain that is big enough and ambitious enough to include them because they are suffragists And they are advocates of anti-lynching legislation, right? They work through the interests of race and the work of gender simultaneously. That cannot be pulled apart. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper is calling for that in the 1860s, and she will still be there in the 1890s as that idea takes shape in the form of a new political organization for Black women. Ooh, let's talk about that a little bit. After the Civil War, after Black women's political activism changes a lot and they start moving towards clubs, the club movement is the kind of next big phase. Let's talk about that. By the 1890s, the writing is on the wall in the United States. The brief experiment in interracial democracy that was the period of Reconstruction has been defeated 
And now Black Americans face the rise of what we come to call Jim Crow, extra legal violence, lynching, intimidation, coupled with now legislation that sets in place segregation, the disenfranchisement of African-American men. This is what historian Rayford Logan calls the nadir, the low point in American race relations here in the 1890s. Black women are still asking that question that Mariah Stewart asked back in the 1830s. How can we bring our full talents to the challenges of this new period that we face? We must organize politically and we must do so independently now because Black women understand that in the public sphere in the United States, there are those who not only doubt that they should be full citizens, there are those who are demeaning and mischaracterizing them and promoting the view that Black women are less than ladies, less than individuals who are suited to full citizenship. The National Association of Colored Women's Clubs is born to bring together what is already a loosely knit network of Black women's clubs dispersed throughout the United States. Now, these clubs are going to come together, cohere as a national organization, very much to, yes, speak to women's interests, including There are some major advocates for women's votes at the founding of this organization like Mary Church Terrell, but they are also going to work through the inspiration of a figure like Ida B. Wells, the great anti-lynching advocate who, of course, is also a suffragist. And this is especially essential because what Black women do not find within the major women's suffrage associations is the space to also work on the problem of lynching, racial violence, segregation, and more. They have to invent that space in order to do the kind of political work that they're committed to doing. A lot happened on the way to the 19th Amendment. And there was even a point where in the book you talk about how there was a proposition to get rid of the 15th Amendment in exchange for the 19th Amendment to just take away Black voting rights entirely so that women could vote. And in circumstances like that, it completely makes sense that Black women would have to create their own spaces when rights for Black men and rights for white women were so at odds with each other, or at least imagined to be that way by white women and Black men. Yeah, the open secret of the latter years of the campaign for the 19th Amendment, the open secret is that nothing in the 19th Amendment is going to enfranchise Black women who live in those places where Black men have already been disenfranchised. Nothing in the amendment will set aside poll taxes or grandfather clauses or literacy tests. Nothing in the 19th Amendment is going to curb lynching or intimidation. All of that is part of the promise of the 19th Amendment, that Southern states will not be required to extend voting rights to African-American women, even after the 19th Amendment 
has been ratified. So here, Black women know the necessity of their own movement, and they know that their work, when it comes to the question of voting rights, will hardly be done, even with the passage of the 19th Amendment or the adoption of the 19th Amendment in 1920, that they still will have to build a bigger and more sustained movement for voting rights. And that's that's another really interesting part of the book is, well, that's another interesting part of the movement overall, is that after the 19th Amendment, when women's voting rights are put into the Constitution, but really only for white women, that Black women, again, shift their strategy on how to get political power and they get more political. Though they can't vote in a lot of places, they do have a lot of influence over presidents and Congress in their own way. Part of what sometimes surprises readers is that this book doesn't end in 1920 <laughs> at all. Uh, because for 19 because 1920 for black women is a milestone. And there are black women, importantly, who will indeed become voters after the 19th Amendment is ratified. But too many Black women are not, especially in the South. And it requires a new movement, just as you say. Some women will continue to expand their access to the ballot box by on-the-ground struggles over registration and getting to the polls. That work will continue after 1920. Certainly, the best example is probably in Chicago, where Ida Wells um, and other Black women have organized the Alpha Suffrage Club. And they're going to send the first Black man to Congress since 1901 and 1928, Oscar de So Black women are doing that ground game of American politics. But there is also a legal struggle to be waged in the NAACP in its growing litigation team, including Constance Baker Motley, is going to chip away at the barriers to voting rights. And they're going to defeat poll taxes. They're going to defeat grandfather clauses. They're going to defeat whites only primaries in these years as a way of getting more black Americans, men and women to the polls. And then, of course, by the 1940s, we have the advent of the modern civil rights movement. And now that revolution is going to bring not dozens or hundreds, but thousands and tens of thousands of black Americans, including many black women, strategists like Diane Nash and leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer. These are black women who are going to be critical to the movement broadly, but particularly the movement's objective, which is to win voting rights protections for Black Americans, which indeed they succeed in winning in 1965. So that's 45 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, before many, many thousands upon thousands of Black American women finally have unfettered access to the polls, finally have protections for their voting rights. That is a different struggle. That is a lonely struggle in many ways, but it is one through which their politics necessarily must diverge from the politics of white American women. They really had to pave their own way. In that time between the 20s and the 60s, Black women are doing so much. There's several times you mentioned Black women like meeting presidents and holding federal appointments even before they were legally allowed to like vote for these presidents. 
so yeah, they were doing the work in making a way. Meet Mary McLeod Bethune. Mrs. Bethune had begun her public life as an educator. And she founds a girls' school in Daytona, Florida, which is today Bethune-Cookman University, still thriving. Mrs. Bethune is a suffragist. And in those years surrounding the 19th Amendment, she is organizing and educating and getting Black women registered into the polls. She faces extraordinary unchecked violence in the state of Florida, organized Klan violence that is for a time, going to defeat the aspirations of Black voters in the state of Florida. But Mrs. Bethune isn't done. And by the 30s, she's come to Washington, in part to create the National Council of Negro Women, which is an umbrella organization now that is going to bring together Black women's organizations of many sorts under the auspices of the council. And she is going to make an impression on Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, so much so that Roosevelt will invite her to help him organize what is colloquially remembered as his Black cabinet. These are the years of violent, still disenfranchisement of many Black Americans. But what Bethune knows and what she's able to show President Roosevelt is that you can do an end run around disenfranchisement. Bethune could not be elected to public office from her home state of Florida, but she could be appointed to federal office by Roosevelt. And she is responsible for introducing the president and ushering in a generation of Black women to Washington who come to staff New Deal agencies that are organizing the relief work that is bringing the country and now Black Americans, too, out of the Depression. So Mrs. Bethune is a remarkable figure for many reasons, but in part because she is her own kind of strategist and understands that just because you're disenfranchised doesn't mean you sit down, doesn't mean you stay home, it doesn't mean you wait for someone to hand you voting rights. Mrs. Bethune knew that Black Americans needed power and they needed it right then. And she finds a way to do that work remarkably in the 30s and the 40s, despite the fact that she remains formally disenfranchised in Florida. And even when the Voting Rights Act was being signed, there were three Black women there who aren't very much talked about at all, but there were three Black women standing by as that was being signed. You're referring to a wonderful photograph that's oftentimes reproduced to tell the story of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There are figures in that photo who, even to 21st century eyes, are probably recognizable, including President Lyndon Johnson and Martin Luther King Jr., who is there and present for the signing of the Voting Rights Act. But yes, there are three women in this photograph. And I have to confess that I did not know who they were myself when I first looked at the photo, but I knew that it was my job to find out. And so I had a very amazing time. I shared the photo on social media. 
on Facebook and Twitter and did a kind of crowdsourcing because even the archive that owned the photo couldn't tell me who the women were. And so I learned, but people had a lot of ideas. They had theories, they disagreed, but ultimately I learned that they included uh, Patricia Roberts Harris, who was herself a lawyer, goes on to be the first African-American woman diplomat, ambassador to Luxembourg. She is there for the signing. There was Vivian Malone, who had come from desegregating higher education in the state of Alabama and then to Washington to uh, herself become a civil rights advocate there standing among those who are witnessing the signing of the act. And third woman, Zephyr Wright. Zephyr Wright, who was a longtime employee of the Johnson family, Lyndon Johnson's family, since their years in Texas. She was the Johnson family cook who continued to work for them and with them during their years in Washington. Why is Zephyr Wright there? Well, it turns out that Zephyr Wright was among the confidants with whom Lyndon Johnson consulted about his civil rights agenda. Johnson attributes to Zephyr Wright and her sharing with him her experience of Jim Crow, of segregation, of denigration, and more. He credits her with not only sharing those experiences, but using those experiences to enlighten and to educate the president about the injustices of Jim Crow in the United States. These are the three women who are there and they open up, don't they? New kinds of vantage points on the story of the Voting Rights Act, vantage points that you can't quite tell through the figure of Martin Luther King Jr., for example. That's crazy that even the archive didn't know who those three women were. Well, clearly the struggle is not over. Black women organizing for intersectional goals and against violence for their own dignity and for quality and betterment for everyone is still happening all the time right now. We have just witnessed an extraordinary election cycle where the force of Black women in American politics is undeniable, whether it is 95 plus percent of Black women voters who turn out for the Democratic candidates, whether it's the 130 Black women who ran for seats in Congress this year and the countless others who ran for state and local offices, whether it's the six women who are on Joe Biden's shortlist while he was searching for a running mate, or it is now Vice President Kamala Harris who lives and works one heartbeat from the presidency. Black women are a force in American politics. And as you, I think, allude to, face some still formidable challenges in how to use that power, how to bring that power to bear on, as Francis Harper would have said, the interests of that great bundle of humanity. I think that's where we are and what we're about to learn in 2021. 
Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much for having me. Again, that was Martha Jones, author of the book Vanguard, which there's so much more to. There's so many more women that we didn't get to cover this episode and so much that we could have gone more in depth on. So you should definitely, if you're interested and want to learn more, you should definitely hit the link in the show notes to buy the book. And if you like this episode, if you learned something, definitely share it. Black women's history deserves more attention and all power, all people, y'all. 